This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the iconic soundtrack from Rocky that premiered on this day in history in 1976. Not only is the Rocky film a classic American underdog story, but the making of the movie itself and the story of the then-unknown actor named Sylvester Stallone. Well, it's a movie almost all by itself. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go and study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And there are tens of hours in there for homeschoolers or for lifetime learners or for anyone in between. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Rocky. It was the longest of long shots, a low-budget boxing movie with a no-name star, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone was also the screenwriter, a task that he completed in just three days on the pages of a spiral notebook. Against all odds, it became a smash hit and spawned a seven-part film franchise that won three Oscars and pulled in over a billion dollars worldwide. And that's old dollars, not today dollars. And by the way, Creed, if you haven't seen it, and it's been out a while, on released on Netflix and wherever, ch- check it out. It's just so good. Maybe the best acting performance of Stallone's career. Rocky is more than a hero. He's an American icon, a symbol of heart, determination, dignity, hope, a no-luck palooka who inspired millions around the globe. But Rocky, the movie, was never a sure thing. Behind the scenes, the making of Rocky is as fascinating a story as the movie itself. The year, again, 1976. The Ramones were playing their first gig. Two friends formed a tiny computer company they called Apple, and a washed-up boxer was about to get his million-to-one shot. To tell this story, we are going to go directly to Sylvester Stallone, to the horse's mouth, the Italian stallion. Stallone was the product of a broken home, in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York City. He was a juvenile delinquent that got kicked out of a series of schools before turning 15. He attended high school in Philadelphia and studied drama at the University of Miami. He moved back to New York, got an apartment, and decided to try his hand at acting. But as any actor will tell you, the one commodity they all have an abundance of is spare time. Here's how Stallone spent that time. And I go out with my big pen and, and legal pad and just start writing these these stories and and most of them were, were were very, very trivial, but there was something about the process of unrealized dreams. I was always brought back to this subject because I think it's one of the most enduring subjects and one of the most difficult passages for people to accept that they never were realized in their own lifetime, that they just didn't get that shot. You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know? I want to know how. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg breaker to some cheap second-rate loan shark. To living? It's a waste of life. The more I thought about this kind of street-like character that 
that just is totally misrepresented by the way he looks physically. Just the way he walks down the street was enough to, to say people, oh, dismiss him. He kind of looks like a bully or looks like a dark kind of character. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting character because they're always unrealized. Yep. And the wannabe actor left New York for Hollywood. He had scored a few small roles, but things were looking bleak. His wife was pregnant. His car was broken down. He had just $106 in the bank. In fact, Stallone had to sell his dog Butkus in order to make ends meet. Then one night, Stallone saw a fight between Muhammad Ali and a local brawler named the Bayonne Bleeder, a 30-to-1 underdog. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Back, slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rim of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! And for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bump turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered for all eternity, at least among the fight fans. He did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst for an idea, a man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. And by the way, the Bayonne bleeder was Chuck Wepner, and that Bayonne is Bayonne, New Jersey, not far from where I grew up. Full of inspiration, Stallone would scratch out a screenplay by hand in, again, a mere three days. So I started to write, and it was one of those writing frenzies. And three days later, I came up with the script of Rocky. Now, the script by no means was a finished piece of material. It was probably about 90 pages, and maybe 10% of it remained in the final script, but it was done. Originally in Rocky, the character was very dark. As a matter of fact, uh, he throws the fight at, at the very end, and Mickey himself turns out to be this very angry, racist man. And, and uh, the reason, actually, Rocky throws the fight because he didn't want to be involved in this kind of world. He just he said, you know, I'd rather be who I was and to just have all this hatred around me and so on. I remember showing it to my wife, she goes, oh, I don't like it, Rocky seems so nasty, so this, so that, because I had made him very, very street-like and, and, and unrepentant, you know, he didn't have the kind of uh, attitude that eventually he ended up with, so I went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And in the end, that's what all writers have to do. And that's go back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And his wife did him a great service telling him she didn't like it. So when you're, when you're working on stuff and loved ones tell you it's not there yet, don't get mad at him. Thank him. And I'm sure, by the way, that he didn't want to hear that right then from his bride. But one thing you're going to get always from a wife who loves you is the truth. When we come back, more on this remarkable story on this day in history. Rocky premiered in 
is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History series, always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. And this one is, of course, Rocky. And on This Day in History, Rocky premiered in 1976. And we left off with Stallone talking about scratching out his screenplay by hand. Then while out on one of his acting auditions, Stallone got a big break, not in acting, but in writing. I first met uh, Bob Shardoff and Erwin Winkler, and I believe I was there on, on a, a, a casting call. So we're talking a little bit, and I guess I really wasn't right for the acting part. And on the way out, I said, oh, I don't know if it matters, but I do a little bit of writing. He goes, really? I says, yeah, I'm writing this, this story. This, uh, I have this thing about wrestlers, and I might do something about boxing. Well, he says, well, bring it around. And I thought, if I hadn't stopped on the way out, you know, that's why I tell all actors or writers, don't give up. Keep talking. Eventually, you might hit a nerve somewhere, and they go, ah, come on back. And if they didn't say, come on back, or bring it later and let's see what you've developed, I wouldn't be sitting here. So I have to give incredible credit to their, uh, to their insight and their patience, and they're willing to take a chance, which um, it doesn't exist much anymore, unfortunately. And it is unfortunate. Well, they read Stallone's script, but little do these producers know that the lead role had already been cast. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and, and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a, a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all you know, were, were at the top of their game. And so I could see it, but there was something inside of me that, that you know, this opportunity is never going to come around, and I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing, but the temptation started to come forward. First it was uh, twenty-five grand, then a hundred thousand dollars. I never heard of a hundred thousand because I had like a hundred six dollars in the bank and like I said I had to sell my dog and things were not looking very very good. Uh, my forty-dollar car had just blown up so I was taking a bus to work and still it, it didn't matter. I wanted to stick with it. Then it went up to 150000 175000 It went up to 250000 Now my head was starting to spin and it went up to 330000 And probably, I heard it went up to 360000 And I thought, all right, you know, you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like, sort of figured it out. So I was not um, in, in any way uh, used to, to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell this script and it does very, very well, I'm going to jump off a building. And if I'm not in it, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants. Say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong and I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. Stallone trained six hours a day for five months to don Rocky's boxing gloves, popping vitamins and hitting the gym to develop his 46-inch chest and 16-inch biceps. Then on January 9, 1976, Sly Stone began filming Rocky. It was the first feature-length movie to employ the Steadicam, 
which was used primarily in the fight scenes and the scenes of Rocky running in Philadelphia during his training. Shot in just 28 days on a measly $950,000 budget, the film left literal marks on the actor-screenwriter. We didn't have really the, the money to shoot a normal Union film at that time in Philadelphia, so we would travel in a van. I would jump out of the van, and uh, we were working with the handheld camera at the time with, with Garrett Brown, and it was uh, somewhat experimental. And he'd film me running through shopping malls and up down the steps and flights, uh, I mean, curved corridors along the river until finally my legs basically gave out and I'm like writhing on the ground and I want to rise up and say, John, I'm dying here. And he goes, no, no, use it. Use the pain. I said, for what? I mean, I'm in misery. He goes, well, no, no. You know, it's giving your character, it's giving him some depth. I said, it's giving me bruises. It's giving me, like, agony. I can't sleep at night. But, you know, John would use... One thing about John, he would use the environment. If he saw, like, the scene where we just jumped down and saw this ship along the dock, this uh, uh, docked along the pier, and he said, just jump out, run as fast as you can along the ship. And, and, and I'm running and running. I said, you know what? My legs are buckling. I'm, I'm literally going to crash down here. Teeth are going to go, jaw face i'm just going to be ground down to this flat-faced image please and, and i just barely made it as john had had me he would have me run and run and jump park benches and down streets and people are throwing things at me like when i had the orange thrown at me and i'm these people had no idea who i was i was just some strange alien invader in a well-worn tattered baggy incredibly ugly sweatsuit running through their neighborhood you know and they're like throwing things at me and we kind of like made it work but actually was like i thought they were trying to hit me with the orange and when it came to casting the reigning world heavyweight champion apollo creed stallone wanted a real boxer ken norton auditioned but he was too big when joe frazier showed up for the role he gave stallone four stitches in the first 11 seconds during a light sparring session. The search continued. A Hollywood cattle call was announced when a former NFL linebacker named Carl Weathers showed up to audition around 10 o'clock at night. He walks in, and he starts to audition, and he's doing the lines well, and then he gets up, and he starts to box with me a little bit, and he bangs two or three off my head. I said, geez, this guy has... He really doesn't care if he gets the part, does he? I mean, he's like he's putting lumps on my forehead, and he's really into it. Then he sits back down. He goes, uh, Mr. Avelson, I could do much better if you had a real actor reading with me. He goes, well, Carl, that's Rocky. That's the guy who wrote the script. He goes, oh, maybe he'll get better. <laughs> you know what? I said, please, hire him. Uh, he's great. He's good. That's exactly the attitude I wanted. He was fantastic, and he still is. And by the way, how many men would have said that if they wrote it and wanted to start it? Would have taken that insult. But Sylvester Stallone knew what he wanted, and he knew the attitude and the cockiness he needed. And that's about as cocky as you get. Maybe he'll get better. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Rocky, well... We're going to get to more of the uh, more of the backstory, but this particular part is what hits us the most. And a lot of people say it's a boxing movie, but it's as much of a boxing movie as Gone with the Wind is a movie about the Civil War. In the end, Rocky's a story about us. It's a story about America. Boxing's just the backdrop. 
It's a tale of two misfits, Rocky and Adrian, who find strength in each other. They originally considered Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Bette Midler for her part. Here's Stallone on casting Rocky's love interest, Adrian, played by Francis Ford Coppola's sister, Talia Shire. Talia Shire was also um, a last-minute choice because we, we just couldn't find the right person. And then she came in, and it was, I think, the same night as Carl Weathers. A very, very... I, I think it was. And she came in, and we just read. And I felt the earth move. I, I really felt a tremendous vitality and kinship. I mean, I loved her. I really, really loved her. I just loved the way she looked and the way she... she her hair fell in, in this timid, fragile creature. I said, just incredible. And the perfect voice. So... When we were going to do uh, Rocky meets her, and he, he he just talks to her, and, and, and he sees a beauty in her that no one else sees because everyone has something to do. Rocky really has nothing to do. So he moves at a much slower pace, and he observes, and he sees things that other people don't see. So he's trying to bring her out because I guess he feels that she's probably the only one who's worse off than he is. So he's feeling kind of like a little protective towards her. And... The sequence where we're supposed to go ice skating, originally that was written for 300 extras, and it was a big deal. Well, I show up on the set, they said, we have a slight change in plans. And when we come back, we're going to hear what those change of plans, what they entailed. We're talking about Rocky, and on this day in history, production began on this iconic movie from the most unlikely of people, this out-of-work, well, never-before-published screenwriter who, well, not much money was spent on the budget. We learned it was low budget. We learned there were unorthodox ways of filming it because there wasn't much of a budget. And look what we get. And he says no, by the way, to all the big stars in the casting call for the women and goes with an unlikely Talia Shire. When we come back, more on the story of Rocky this is Our American Stories, our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. American stories, and we continue with Sylvester Stallone's story, and we love when we can to bring it right again from the horse's mouth. Nobody else here, nobody's opinions. We're hearing from Sylvester Stallone himself about the remarkable story of how Rocky got made, how it got cast, some of the innovations, including that steady cam. So much of this movie could not have been shot. So many of the scenes could not have happened without this camera that sat on someone's shoulders and they just sort of followed Rocky around. That meat locker scene where Rocky's punching out the meat, that just couldn't have happened without the Steadicam. Not on that budget. And again, they had a budget of $950,000. And when we left off, Talia Shire was, well, of course, Rocky's pick. And by the way, some of the other actresses in contention were Cher and Bette Midler and Susan Sarandon, but Stallone... Well, there was just something about Talia Shire. Let's pick up where he left off. 
we have one extra. I said, interesting. And um, I said, well, I have a, an interesting thing uh, to tell you, too. I don't ice skate. I don't know why I wrote it, but I thought it'd be interesting. So here we are with an empty arena, and uh, I don't really skate at all. So I decided I was going to run on ice, and she really, she says she skates, but if you watch, her, her ankles are falling in, and she's barely holding on, and Rocky's trying to explain his life, looking cool, and he looks like so foolish, but she doesn't care. And where they really come together at that moment when he goes, you know, my father said I wasn't born with much of a brain. He goes, uh, my mother, my mother, she says sort of the same thing. He says, you weren't born with much of a body, so you better start developing your brain. It's like, oh, these two people are two halves that absolutely need to fit together. You know, they are really on the same page. Then he walks her home. I think we make a real sharp couple of coconuts. I'm dumb with you shot. What do you think? And I'm starting to, like, realize that this is the key to the film. This is the heartbeat. The whole, the whole movie is going to be based on the discovery of these two people, the love. She goes upstairs, and now she's, like, terrified because this is not exactly what you call a swinging bachelor apartment. And the moment when he, when he gets her to that, that door, all of a sudden the, the whole facade changes. He no longer looks like this terrifying guy. He goes, you know, would you take off your glasses? And she really looks. If you ever watch that scene closely, you'll never see better responding by an actress to an awakening inside of like really feeling like someone truly loves her that it's like she's dying she's never felt this before and coming from this man who is you know this physical kind of specimen the last kind of guy she ever imagined herself being with it, it just i mean I, I disappear in that scene she is just off the chart you don't want to kiss me back if you don't want Meanwhile, Stallone and the producers knew just whom they wanted to cast as Mickey, the trainer. I'd written it for Lee J. Cobb, who I thought was brilliant and on the waterfront, and he had the part. And then the director goes, okay, uh, let's turn to page 16 and read. He goes, excuse me? I had Lee J. Cobb come in for the Mickey role and asked him to read, and he became very indignant that he didn't read. He goes, I've done about 60 movies. John said... Yeah, you buy a Rolls Royce, you still want to drive it around the block. Because <laughs> the last time I read was for a radio show in 1936. So if you wanted this jockey, you should hire one. I don't read. He looked at Sly, and he said, if I could write like you, I never would have been an actor. Then he walked out. Even though I lost a great Lee J. Cobb, Lee Strasberg, Lou Ayers, and all these great characters, Broderick Crawford, but then in walked Burgess and Pingo. He had no problem with uh, auditioning. He came in and we read the scene where Rocky's thrown out of his locker and he comes and complains to Mickey. First time we meet Mickey. Came to the end of the scene and as Rocky turns to walk away, Burgess says, hey, Rock. Well, that's not in the script. Sylvester said, yeah. He said, hey, you ever thought about retiring? And, and Sylvester said, no. Think about it. I said, great. That's perfect. You got the part. That's just what he would say. And then there's that music that has become as well-known as the movie itself. A minuscule 25000 all-in music budget meant several established composers passed on the project. 
Here's Bill Conti, the music composer for Rocky. So I did about a minute. I had done da 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 and a da 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 in a faster kind of way. I said, you got to make it a little bit longer. He says, man, I need another 30 seconds. I shot about five miles of slide doing one-arm push-ups and medicine balls. Can I have another 30 seconds? So it kept growing and growing. By the end, of course, it ended up being what it is. It sounded great. I said, you know, you ought to put some lyrics to this thing. This sounds like a song. We had a lyricist on the project, and John says, well, can't we say something? I says, well, we've hired two lyricists. You can say anything you want. So he thought, oh, okay, and that's how Gonna Fly Now came to be. And imagine that. Again, one of the most iconic music soundtracks of all time, done for a shoestring budget of $25,000. If you ever get a chance and you're a movie fan, um, by the way, see and read Truffaut and Hitchcock. It's the great Francois Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock. And then there's an HBO film about those interviews that you can't stop watching. But there's a book by Bernard, about Bernard Herrmann, and that is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's composer for all of his movies. And I, I don't think many people think there were many better soundtracks than Hitchcock movies. And the, bo- the best one, the most iconic one, Sprung from no budget. It turns out Psycho was made, and Alfred Hitchcock tested it, and it tested terribly. So he wasn't going to have it be a movie. He was going to stick it into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Bernard Herrmann saw it said, hey, let me play with that. And generally, he had full orchestras. But in this particular instance, he just took four violins. And that famous shower scene came about because Bernard Herrmann thought he could add something to the, to the subtext of this great movie. And to this day, that is one of the most iconic sound sequences in the history of movies, right along with that, that sharp and simple uh, violin and string sequence in Jaws. And again, Bernard Herrmann talking about his ability to adapt with no money and do great things. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, Hillsdale now has a dozen courses up online, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, well, they can get to you. And it's everything from the Constitution, Constitution 101, straight to their magnificent, magnificent uh, 10-part course on C.S. Lewis. And you want to talk about a storyteller from the Chronicles of Narnia straight through to, well, the screw tape letters and mere Christianity may be the greatest piece of basic theology ever written that anybody could access and understand. Again, that's Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, we're going to close out our hour on Rocky. And again, what an unlikely story. My favorite part so far is that this guy somehow managed to hold out on a $360,000 advance when he didn't have two nickels to rub against one another. And also that he had the audacity walking out of that audition to talk to two of the biggest producers in the world and tell them he had a script like they'd care. And by the way, that those two guys listened and didn't say, get the heck out of here, kid, because that's the other side of that story. Those guys could have said, you're a bum. Get out of here. Who asked you? And you can imagine all the other pejoratives that could have come their way. But Erwin Winkler knew better. And my goodness, what a decision he made. And when we come back, more on the Rocky story. On this day in history, in 1976, the movie premiered. Let's listen to Bill Conti's soundtrack as we go out. You've heard it a million times, but now you know it was made for next to nothing. 
This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories and our final segment in this hour-long celebration of Rocky on this day in 1976. It premiered in America. And where we left off in this pretty amazing story, that iconic ending where Rocky embraces Adrian in the ring was not originally written that way. The original ending of Rocky was uh, quite different than what we have now. The original ending was he, he goes the distance, and he's looking for Adrian. The crowd is starting to disperse. You know, one minute after the fight, yes, he, he did a noble thing, but time moves on. The, the champion is carried out of the ring, and Rocky starts to meander through the crowd. He eventually gets to the curtain. He pulls back the curtain at the back of the arena and sees Adrian, and she gives him a, a slight hug, and he picks up this small pennant like a flag and hand in hand they start to walk back to the rock locker room there's no one talking to him anymore there's just trash strewn everywhere and they just see these two solitary figures moving off into the distance off into like you know being anonymous forevermore but they just had that moment and and the, all he could think about was how much he loved her and just getting back to his life again the real life and it just didn't seem very very satisfying so after we had done that and that was the poster shot we thought boy wouldn't it be interesting to catch a man's moment a man's life at the quintessential seminal moment so we went back and i have friends in the scene i have producers in the scene we had about 30 people we only had the money to do like one quarter of the ring so just a little corner and you see these people going around in a circle milling around, and in crowds and rocky's going oh I, you know just get everything out of my face and he's yelling for adrian rocky adrian rocky and they had someone as as adrian is running to the ring again very very tight they had uh, like fishing line connected to her hat and they pull her hat off so because I thought wouldn't it be interesting that the first thing Rocky says when she comes into the ring is like where's your hat I mean he's so into her into like the way she looks and that he doesn't care that his eyes are swollen shut his hands are smashed and that he's done the greatest thing in his life he doesn't say look at me he goes where's your hat and he's like I love you he goes, you know I love you too yeah I mean the visuals working, the sound is working, the body movements are all coming together at this absolute peak. And right there, when I embrace her, 
uh, I was sitting with John Amelson, and he, we froze right on the single frame when he is looking elated, and he has her in his arms, and it's just this look of ecstasy. And the next frame, it went like, uh, it just deflated. I said, there it is. From that moment on, it's all downhill. I mean, how we all hit this absolute maximum of elation and celebration, and you know that can only be sustained for like ah, just an infinitesimal moment in time. And if you can just can you imagine how how great it would be just to freeze on that moment. And that's how we froze Rocky. That the original Rocky, he went out at the height. His, his, his life will never be more rewarding or more important or more valid than that second. And it's, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. I've been trying to do it in films ever since to bring all those three elements together at the exact instant is, um, it, it was like a minor miracle. And indeed it was. And so we've learned all about how this unlikely film came to be. It's finished. It's wrapped up. But, you know, you never know what you have. And before a film goes to full theatrical release, well, it gets shown around to people and to influencers. And back then, well, the Directors Guild of America is where this film got shown in some of the initial showings. And you can imagine how nervous Sylvester Stallone is. I mean, he's passed up real opportunities. If he blows this movie, by the way, it's on him. He can't blame someone else for messing it up. And by the way, the Directors Guild is an entertainment guild representing all the directors in cinema, television, and radio. Then finally, it was being shown at the Directors Guild, and this was going to be the test. And there was about 900 people invited, and it was a packed crowd, and the movie was playing terribly. My mother was sitting next to me, and the laughs weren't coming where they were supposed to, and the fight itself seemed to be listless the response was and i sat there as everyone filed out of the theater and i couldn't believe it i said wow i really blew it it was all like i don't know it was, it was nice while it lasted but i guess when you get down and you show it to the big boys they're just not buying it anyway i sat there and literally there was no one left in the theater because i didn't want i was humiliated and saddened by the whole thing and even you know i walked her out and I was walking down the steps, and there's three flights down, first flight, second flight, and then by the time I turned for the third flight, the entire audience was down there. There was 900 people waiting, and they started to applaud, and I mean truly applaud. And I said, how could you doubt me, Mom? I'm shocked. <laughs> and it's like, I really, I just completely came apart. And there's, there's, so there'll never be a moment like that ever. I mean, I truly was over. I said, this is it. I'm just going to you know, go back home, take my dog, and go back into, you know, trying to eat out a living. And they were all there. And they responded in a way. It's like, I don't know if that's the way they did things in Hollywood, but they saved it up and I'll never get over that moment. I just looked at all these people and they were applauding. And it's been all downhill since. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembers that like it happened to him yesterday. And then the question becomes this, why does Rocky resonate with so many people? Rocky never expected to win. Never. He knew it. 
he was that much of a realist. And I, I like, admired the character for that because so often I had gone to uh, fight films and or sporting films. Yes, we're going to go out there, we're going to knock him out, you're going to win. I said, no, because I'm not going to win. I'm going to get destroyed. But if I can just be lucid, if I can still be standing on my feet, you know what? Then life isn't so bad. And I think, again, symbolically, at the very end of our lives, if we can still say, you know, I lived life with integrity and I took all the blows, as the song says, and I'm, I still prevailed, I think that's a, that's a, a good epitaph for anyone. And that's what I tried to capture in this film. And again, if you get the chance to see Creed, if you've seen the others, and you haven't seen Creed yet because you're thinking, why do I want to watch a movie where uh, Rocky Balboa is now a washed-up restaurant owner? I mean, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm promising you, you won't be disappointed. It may be the best Rocky movie. And that's hard for me to say because the first one's so good and Rocky II is so good. This is a case where the remakes were really great and people would actually argue about which remake was the best. Four. Four, says Hengler. Hengler says four. And... Well, me, one and two were great, but Creed is just, it kills me. And at the 1977 Academy Awards, Rocky was nominated in no fewer than 10 categories. Not bad for a debut, huh? Including just these minor things like best actor, best original screenplay, and he ended up winning, they ended up winning three Oscars this movie. Best director, best picture, and best film editing. And those are three, by the way, heavyweight awards for the Academy. And so we're going to leave this segment with these parting words from the champ. Let's take a listen. It almost seems like, like a dream state. And quite often people said, or people will say, God, that must have been incredible. I said, yeah, but I was never there. And now when I sit back and I reflect on it, how, what a, an incredible miracle. Every day, I truly miss that character so much, I tell you, sometimes I could just cry because I'll never have a voice like that again where I can just speak whatever I feel in my heart. Um, that's the one thing I'll always cherish about that character because if I say it, you won't believe it, but when Rocky said it, it was the truth. Yep, and a great writer, William Faulkner, once said, all autobiography is fiction, and all fiction is autobiography. And I don't think there's been better and truer words spoken about writing and the written word. And we've got to thank Sylvester Stallone for that, for offering that up to the public. Uh, you can go on YouTube and catch so much good stuff about the making of Rocky, but we thought we'd bring you it from Stallone's mouth himself and you could tell he stumbled on something he just knew he stumbled on it and it all goes back to watching that fight chuck wepner the bayonne bleeder muhammad ali just saying hey let's do it on a lark let's this give this guy a shot nobody gave him a chance and he put the champ down i'll never forget that because i'm a jersey kid rooting for this jersey guy to just make it through a round i mean people thought he wouldn't survive a round and Stallone had the sense to know what was going on there and frame a movie around that feeling, that thought, that idea, that character. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Greg. Our This Day in History 
segments always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great, great online courses on this day in history in 1976. Rocky Premier. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books, and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler. Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. Some people did jail time for these magazines in the 30s. So they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Donenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck. For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips, or funnies, are a popular, cheap, and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists. January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York and you find on them Fun Comics number one, the very first DC comic. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience. The major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Leibowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises... Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are shy and unpopular in school. Unsuccessful with the girls, and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. They lose themselves in science fiction magazines, 
and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth. I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night, and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning. He had this dream in which he kept having flashes of a character that would become a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater. He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend, and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings. Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape. You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate, visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from happening. Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I was quite meek and I was quite mild, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person and his girls didn't know that this clod here is really somebody special. I was very small, and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth, so that was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort. In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books ranked just above the adult magazine industry. Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams. Nobody liked it. This was a, an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created a genre. Meanwhile, Donenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born. And there he is, on the cover, 
the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over 3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed, but receives dealers' requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month. And when we come back, more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our story of comic superheroes. In 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented. They launched Superman the first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Sterenko. The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come afterward. Superman. The kids in America. <laughs> They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes. Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening in Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel. These are families that have come over from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the characters live for them. And Nazism was uh, you know, rising up and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed. Countries were being invaded, a lot of innocents uh, slaughtered. And I felt that the world desperately needed a crusader, if only a fictional one. Here's comic writer Dwayne McDuffie. Superman was about the immigrant experience in a very, very powerful way. It's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet, to America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s. The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon. There was never anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940. 
We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big. Over 100,000 boys and girls in the United States and Canada are members of the Supermen of America. One mother says... I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics magazine for including a health page in every issue. Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to do so. Say, he can do about anything, can't he? Everywhere you go, Superman, he's in your newspaper strip, he's on your radio, there's short cartoons in your theater, he's on clothing, you know, he's in the Macy's Day Parade as a balloon, he's at the World's Fair in costume, it's Superman Day at the World's Fair, it's a big deal. Everybody would have known Superman, from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of Ellis Island, everybody would have known. DC is quick to exploit the Superman formula. Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success. For the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane, this call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane. And at DC Comics at that time, the editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another superhero in the uh, genre of Superman? And let's see, I was making about $25 a week. And I said, how much does Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman, make? Well, they make $800 a week apiece. I said, for that kind of money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, see, I love it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good question, Vince. <laughs> Maybe we'll call it the Bat-Hyphenated Man. Less than a year after Superman's debut... DC introduce the Batman. I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to be a rich playboy and fight crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a, a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in. Here's comic artist... Erwin Hassan. We all were kids from the Bronx. We were all a bunch of schmucks, some being talking Jewish schmucks. We were innocent, talented guys. Who schmucks? We never drew ourselves. Why? Why should we draw poor little guys? What would inspire us to draw poor little guys? Comic books is an industry made up of people who aren't accepted, who desperately want to be accepted. So they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were rich and handsome and muscular and able to handle any situation and uh, not tongue-tied. The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly, especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman. That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city, and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror that he had to go through. 
Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at DC is booming. Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all. He was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hard-working teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee. Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write. A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable merely by speaking the magic word, Shazam. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953, when inevitably, DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory. The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was, he flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court. And that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in apparently 14 panels of comics. Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber, on these comic books, because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore, or any of these guys in this area of work, because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's get back to the story. Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis, who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Starenko and comic historian Bradford Wright. Captain America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler. That said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand and sold out of his first issue. In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mixed their patriotic super soldier with political prophecy when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, DC launches Wonder Woman, the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor Louise Simonson. She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Chabon and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with great gusto. Week after week, month after month, just pounding the hell out of the Nazis. The stories had so much pro-American propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government, but it was just, we felt we had to do that. And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for GIs serving in the Second World War, and they liked them. Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry joined their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back. Burt Christman was a young illustrator who, with Gardner Fox, created Sandman. But his real love was flying. His real love was adventure. So he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and tragically was shot down over Burma in the line of service. Stan Lee also served. I felt I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself. After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed, nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including 
Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs to unprecedented heights when sales reach 100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to DC following their audience to a brand new medium, television. Faster than a speeding bullet. In the 1940s, Superman's mission is defined one way. Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. By the 1950s and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became truth, justice, and the American way. That phrase, the American way, was all over the place in the 1950s because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle, not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, but against the United States Senate. Both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds. Comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval. At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing. Well, if that comic code emblem was not on the book, the book did not get distributed. Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the 1960s, we're going to the moon we're already in Vietnam, and because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee. I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife, so she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays, and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power. Incredible. Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, 
These will be the first superheroes invented out of the atomic age. Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already. And, and he and the torch were always arguing and fighting. The thing hated being the thing. And the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty. And it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era. Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk. I am the least scientific person you'll ever know. So I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it. And what an American voice, what an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of this great story about, well, American comic book superheroes, and so much of it, as we learned, had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage, Hitler and Stalin. And now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present. Let's go and return back to where we last left off. Marvel had suddenly emerged because Stan Lee created characters with an additional dimension to them. That is, superheroes with problems. This gives Stan Lee an idea. Why not weave a new kind of tale? A teenage superhero. Lee pitches the idea to his boss at Marvel. You say that he's a teenager? A hero can only be an adult. Teenagers are sidekicks. And you say you want them to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting that in the 1930s, uh, you had the country seemingly falling apart. And yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable. And yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were vulnerable and, and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously self-absorbed. <laughs> All this was magnified in, in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him and the world doesn't understand him. Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. 
Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. What makes Spider-Man such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was in disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98-pound weakling. His life sucked. Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day. In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure, while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around, the drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee. We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher, I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how delighted they were. Within a week, they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's gone. When it comes to the first superhero, Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve. What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way, everybody goes, <laughs> you know, but he's not kidding. It was just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape. It's all right, nothing to get worried about. Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to, in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody. And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous cape crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. Excuse me. That's a bad outfit. The 1978 Superman motion picture is one of the biggest moneymakers in Warner Brothers film history to date. 
The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards and a new wave of supermania hits in the wake of the film's success. A wave that rolls into three sequels. I've got you. In the closing years of the Cold War, inflation is high and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having a crisis of confidence. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979, when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called The Punisher, and actually kills people. In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti-heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in, an, in a gangland killing. Uh, he undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's going to exact justice himself. Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There are cities in Michigan. Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright. People voted for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular mood. In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, Thousands of comic book stores close. Hundreds of creators lose their jobs. And by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. Monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie. They got darker and darker and darker, and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over adversity. The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. He's a guard. The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world. One September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad. This picture of Spider-Man looking at Ground Zero, it's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us. DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads... Wow. Superheroes endure because 
They represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity. The ones that work are archetypes, made by people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did drawing the pictures on the caves at Lascaux. We're using story to create context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. They're our mythology, they're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And you know, they're not gonna let us down. Superman's not gonna let us down. Superman's always gonna be there. To people all over the world, superheroes embody the values, hopes, and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories.